what is happening? Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we're going to talk about the story of Edna Betty Jean Masters, a 21-month-old girl that disappeared on July 3rd, 1960, leaving no trace. As usual, you can expect foul language, but also this is a heartbreaking case and may be hard for some listeners, so please listen with care. Let's get ready for another human exception. You still have a video, Hallie, or no? Oh, I know what. I'm dumb. Just <laughs> forget I said anything. I didn't say anything. What video? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if Courtney's joining us. Remember, she said oh, maybe because she okay. was moving all of yesterday. So right, yeah. right, yeah. She's in the middle of of like. Oh, if it were me, I wouldn't. But... Hell no. Hell no. I love y'all, but I'd be like, nah. <laughs> yeah, fuck that noise. No, please. No. I'm gonna go sleep. <laughs> there we go. Alright, alright, alright. I mean, I've got a sneeze coming. Oh, no. Not that. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Greg, are you failing again? Oh, no. Are you just going to be like... I mean, he says he's in here, but do we believe him? <clears throat> well, <laughs> I don't. Oh, shit. Okay. Oh, I got to yell at Tyler about that one. It's not coming for some reason, so I guess I'm just going to have to no live sneeze. with that threat of a, a sneeze, potentially. Yeah. Well, we've got a Craig, so... A Craig. All right. That's, that's, that's all we need, really. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, yeah. I'm start my backup. Freya woke me up at six this morning, so it's been a day. Um, ma'am, no. Right? No. But did you have to go pee right after? I did. It's the weirdest thing. She wakes us up and we have to go pee. <laughs> the only thing was, and I went back to bed. And she's like still like licking me and stuff, and I re- I also had really bad heartburn. So I'm like, I I guess this isn't happening. <laughs> I guess I'm awake now. So what it is oh, no. is Freya's keeping you awake when she knows there's something wrong. <laughs> Medical alert, cat. God, mom, I think you this have heartburn. Get up. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, all right. Well. I could probably kick us out, kick us off this time because mine's a bit of a bummer. Uh, I put my better. <laughs> I put my Google Drive file in our uh, shared notebook, and I saw some of. I just like briefly saw some of your examples, and I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be bad. This is gonna <laughs> be a good thing." <laughs> no. Already, already, already. Oh, a couple weeks ago, when we were trying to figure out what the heck that we were doing for this episode, and I wanted to, of course, figure out what I was doing, um, 
We have the OneNote, so audience, we have a OneNote where we keep all our ideas. Because <laughs> we don't keep them in our brains. If you're like me, you don't have one. Um, anyways, it's a digital book where we keep our ideas, so when we need ideas, we look at the book. And there was one that I'd put down a while ago that I hadn't, you know, done anything with yet. Um, and basically the topic was British Columbia's Bermuda Triangle. It's this idea that there is an area with a high concentration of mysterious disappearances that roughly forms a triangle, which naturally sounds right up our alley, as you can imagine. But then I was talking to my best friend, Josie. So Josie told me that she's been watching this show where online sleuths uh, solve crimes and had pondered the idea that if they could solve a mystery that had haunted her mom and her friends for 60 years. Naturally, I'm apprehensive of online sleuths, even though in some aspects I kind of am one. But I know enough to know that there have been far too many times that people have got it wrong and ruined lives. I can count dozens of times that this happened with a Gen Sega alone. And in that case, we're not dealing with murder or straight-up illegal activities. And everyone knows a good armchair detective's favorite topic is murder. And I mean, <laughs> do I even have to mention Pizzagate? <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah. 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 And as a side note, Netflix has a really good sh uh, show called Clickbait. It's a scripted drama, but really kind of il illustrates how easy it is to get this shit wrong and the horrific consequences that uh, happen when you do. <laughs> so, recommend that. Yes. Uh, so, Josie tells me that her mom's best friend, Phyllis, had a sister that went missing and has never been found. She sends me a news article about the case and I begin to dig. So this happened in a tiny town in British Columbia. A lot of this online research stuff is really dependent on documentation being made available online, like newspapers, public records, etc., which even now is a slowly growing initiative in the big cities, but certainly hadn't touched the small communities that I grew up, never mind this tiny logging community in the bush. Also, in Canada, there aren't the same record sites that they have in the States, so it's a lot harder to find information. But nonetheless, I dug into it. <laughs> So the story goes, on Sunday, July 3rd, 1960, around 8 p.m., Alice and Morris Masters were doing business in the Red Lake Post Office. Outside, of their, outside their 21-month-old daughter was playing with the kids of two family friends. When the Masters emerged from the post office, their daughter was gone, and the kids had no idea what had happened to her. Naturally, word spread quick as Red Lake was a tiny logging community where everyone knew everyone, and the, RC, and the RCMP was quickly involved. The lumber mill shut down and it was estimated that between 30 and 60 members of the Red Lake community and the surrounding areas pitched in to help with the search. A police dog was brought in to search the area, but it said that it became confused because of all the people who had been through the area. There were three suspects on the list. A mama black bear that had recently lost her cub and had been known to hang around the community's children. A couple in a copper-colored car with Alberta plates and a three-legged cougar. I'm not kidding. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Okay. Some, papers, some papers claim that late Tuesday on July 5th, two days after Betty Jean went missing, parents called off the search and no trace of Betty Jean has ever been found. That's the story, at least how it's reported in the province and the Vancouver Sun to the biggest newspapers in the province, but also written some 400 kilometers or 250 miles away. I had no luck finding anything in the few digitized papers from the communities closer to Red Lake. I even emailed the Revelstoke Museum, which has an extensive archive of all their local papers, and they told me they had nothing that had been reported in their papers. So obviously, this leaves so many questions. 
What post office in the 1960s was open at 8 p.m. on a Sunday? Never mind in a community that maybe had a dozen families living there. Hmm. What parent would call off the search of their toddler after two days? How could absolutely nothing be found? Why hadn't the police dog found anything? And whatever happened to that cougar's fourth leg? These are the questions. Anyways, turns out things are not as clear-cut as the papers reported them, and it seems that everyone that hails from that community has a slightly different version of events. Hmm. The, this, uh, 2009, the small community ga- uh, surrounding Red Lake got together and wrote a book titled Memories of Chris Creek, Red Lake, and Copper Creek, 1910-1980 to or so. They talked to the people that used to live there and their children, collecting stories of this tiny communities. Josie had been told that that contained some more information about the story, as every other resource had run dry, that was my next stop. This book was published on the smallest scale, so it's not like there was an e-book I could buy or a copy I could snag through Amazon. I discovered that if I wanted to read this book, I would have to go to the Central Library here in Vancouver so that I could read it in their special collections room. This was kind of cool, as I had never done that before, but also involved leaving the house and I wouldn't be able to do it until the next time that we record or by in time by the next time that we were going to record so then naturally instead I did cassowaries while I planned my trip so the book opens up talking about the founding families of these tiny communities and the early settlers in the 1900s that came with almost nothing going deep into the wilderness and making a home on memories of generations past doing their best to make a living and provide for their families this ain't no fucking. This is this ain't a small book. <laughs> this book is thick. There's Damn. oh 400 500 pages. <laughs> Damn yeah. Wow. So they talk about communities so small that they didn't have a phone or even power for the longest time, and whose school was a cabin that had been adapted and doubled as their post office. 1960, the year of the disappearance, the school had 33 students in total, and that's across all grades and coming from the surrounding communities. This is a time when it wasn't uncommon for families to have several children. For Betty Jean's family, in the end, they would have six children, so you can get the idea of just how small this community was. Front of the book was a map. Get an idea of the general area, the small communities, all those tiny little fucking roads. And then this is the... Oh, wow. uh, Google satellite view, and you can see this is just fucking wilderness. <laughs> In this book, Betty Jean's disappearance is mentioned several times, and each story has a few more details. So the first one is, I would watch for crows and stuff, but they never did find her. Amazing how they can disappear. Someone could have picked her up and taken her out. They could have gone in through Tranquil Lake, Jackson Dam, and up in the area. Different people had sightings of a biscuit-colored car with big fins. They did a lot of car checking, but no luck. Another says, Morris Masters lived in the old Welland house and drove a a logging truck up there. He He had parties for the kids and made donuts, and everyone with kids would go, and all the kids would have a good time. The adults would have a drink or two, and somebody would wind up with the music. Morris and his wife, Alice, had six kids. Jimmy was the eldest. They had a boy, Lori, that I think was actually named Lawrence. Two more girls, but I can't remember their names. Betty Jean was the one that disappeared. I think she was 18 months at the time. It was July 1st. They tore that place apart and couldn't find her. The kids looked out in all the places where they used to hide. It happened a little bit before we got up there. They live in Vernon now. Then... There were cabins across the road 
from where the Buntings later lived, the mill workers rented. There was one little girl that was lost from there. They never did find her. I remember somebody from there was coming out, out of town and trying... Somebody was from... God, these guys... Weird things really weird. <laughs> I remember somebody coming from up there was coming out of the town on the tranquil road and they'd seen the car. When the car got closer to them. Someone pushed somebody down in the back seat. I can't remember who it was. I, and I didn't know of the girl's disappearance until I got back up to the lake. So July 1st, 1956, it was a holiday. We were in Camelot. We decided to go home as we had lumber that needed to be hauled. Musket said that he would be up. He drove our lumber truck a particular time. Picked up the cook and just got about, about noon. Sorry. We picked up the cook and, uh, and just about home around noon or so and kind of got things straightened around. We even met Musket on the road taking a load of lumber. Somebody came up to the camp at Chris Creek about 5.30 in the afternoon or so saying that a little three-year-old girl was taken. We had a radio. We had a radio phone at the time with good reception, and we had set hours that it would be on so downtown could call us. We got a request from the police that they wanted all the campers, all the camps, to look for the child. They spent all night looking, but never found her. She never was found. Mm -hmm. She went missing from the old Welland Quarter. The Masters family was living there at the time. Morris Master, the girl's father, was loading cars for us down at Copper Creek that day. Musket often stopped at the old Welland place to pick up the mother and the girl. Her little shoes would never stay on, and the musket always had to pick them up for her. I forget, but there was something about there was something else about the child. She always had a baby bottle or a doll or something, but they never found those either. We dropped the mother and the girl off at the Millers near uh, Shilmanfegs. 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 All the women were inside, and they had put the kettle on to make some tea. Shema Fennig's son was seven, and two of their little kids were also there. I can't remember who. They questioned that boy and questioned him. There was lots of water around there and sloughs. There was a big pit that they went all went through, and they checked out. They checked out the bears too. No trace. Not even the slippers. It was well combed. The next day, they closed all the mills down and went hand in hand all through the area, and, and they never did find her. And finally, I remember a little girl, but one to two years, being stolen while we were children playing in the yard. We had gone to someone's house, mum would know who, and a couple arrived with their little girl. We played with her inside and then she came outside with us. I took her back to, I took her back to her mum, but she was allowed to come back outside again. This should have been fine. A car with a man and a woman arrived and talked to us. They seemed very nice, but did not go in the house. The woman was holding the little girl and then left with her. I thought they knew her and it was okay. The little girl did not protest. The couple went to leave with their little girl was gone. I remember saying that she went with the man and the lady in the car, but the adults never noticed the car come in. The search was done in the forest for the little girl. Mom told us f for weeks to look into the woods whenever we traveled in hopes of maybe seeing her. Many people thought a cougar or an animal carried her off. Huh. But there's a lot of inconsistencies there. <laughs> man, and just like, this was what, the 60s? Yes. Yeah, that whole thing of like, well, we just thought that that girl knew those people. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, that. <laughs> oof, 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 oof. Too far, that was a kid saying that, though. That woman was a kid when she <laughs> had that experience. Yeah, yeah, but still, I mean. So there is some inconsistency on the date. In one story, the event happened on July 1st. And another, it was July 1st, 1956, when the newspapers reported as July 3rd, 1960. And that's also when all the reporting happened, so I have to side with the papers here. It could have just been just because it was that Canada Day long weekend that people just think of July 1st. 
I don't know. But we also remember that these stories were recorded at the earliest in 2000s, more than 40 years after the disappearance. And memory is a really fickle thing, especially if you're a child at the time or getting into your later years now. Nowhere in the papers does it mention someone witnessing Betty Jean talking to the drivers of the car and getting into the vehicle with them, though. Hmm. We talked about what everyone else had to say about what happened. So time we get down to what the family believes happened. We've got a picture of Betty Jean here. I want to stress that this is coming to me firsthand. Like, Josie, my best friend, told me, who heard it from her mom, who heard it from her best friend, who heard it from her family and family friends, as she hadn't been born for another couple years time of the mysterious disappearance so <laughs> who knows <laughs> so according to Josie things went a little differently she says that she's not sure where the post office thing came from as Alice Masters had been in Red Lake visiting friends the musket family she was there with Betty Jean her five-year-old son and her younger child Alice took the baby inside to nurse leaving the eldest of the musket children Jimmy who was 11 with Betty Jean who was playing outside boy set her down under a tree and ran inside for something. When he came back out, she was gone. Jimmy felt responsible and stayed up all night looking for her. The papers claim the family called off the search after two days, but Josie says that's not the case. She says the RCMP helped the search effort for two weeks, but after that, they kind of gave up, and Alice claims that, after, that she never heard from the RCMP again in regards to that until 2013. That is also the first time that she recalls seeing a story in the local papers about her daughter's disappearance. She felt like the authorities simply didn't care. So there are four scenarios that seem most likely in regards to disappearance. So first, it's environmental. So Red Lake is a rugged country with two capital G's. Like, forest so dense you don't see daylight in the depths. Mosquito infested, strangled in underbrush. Getting through those woods is no easy task, even for an adult that knows what they're doing. It's noted that when the police were building a search team, they requested only experienced hunters and loggers to join the efforts, just because of how treacherous the landscape can be. If a child were to get lost in the wilderness, you wouldn't see them from a helicopter. If you went inside the forest, you likely wouldn't see them until you were on top of them. So it's easy to imagine a child getting lost and being unable to find their way out. But that's assuming that they could get far in the first place. So the whole asking for experienced adults only for search parties says something about just how wild that wilderness was. Several years back, Josie's mom and Betty Jean's sister, Phyllis, went on an investigative trip across the province to Red Lake. They went to where Betty Jean was last seen, and Josie's mom noted just how impenetrable the woods were. And she's a woman that knows wilderness, being part of a hunting family, and the community where we're from had very similar vegetation. She said she can't imagine a toddler getting anywhere without tearing her clothes or losing their shoes, and Betty Jean was in sandals. Someone has went quadding in flip-flops up BC mountains. I can tell you this is a terrible idea, and I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> the forest isn't the only environmental threat. Red Lake is a lake, after all. We do know that a nearby pond was drained in search for the toddler, and divers also searched the lake. Second threat was wildlife. So, of course, we're going to talk about the three-legged cougar, but first the mama bear. As, as the papers mentioned, there was a black bear in the area who lost her cubs, her, lost her cub, and the kids reported her coming around. Despite the common narrative, black bears are not vicious killing machines. If you grew up around these bears, you know that they're timid and will run up a tree the second they get spooked. It's common knowledge to not get between a mother bear and her cubs, and while this is a good idea regardless... This fearsome re reputation comes from grizzly bears, where 70% of, of lethal grizzly attacks occur because of a human's proximity to their young. For black bears, since 1900, there have been 61 deaths by black bears in North America. 
And out of those 61 deaths, only three were attributed to mothers with cubs. Meanwhile, there's 30 to 50 deaths by dogs a year, so think about that one. The black bears aren't as much of a threat as people think they are. No, they're really not. Yeah, bears Those are not dogs, babies. obviously. <laughs> yeah. It, well, that's, that's, I always think when it comes to like bear stuff, I now always think about that town. And I think it was in New Hampshire years ago that decided it was going to be some kind of libertarian haven. And because no one wanted to pay for like trash removal guess what the bears got to chomp on all the time oh, and no. yeah and it was unfortunate too because the one lady was like kind of like a cat hoarder and the bear got some of her cats but instead of you saying like hey maybe we should knock this off and you know get like animal control back in here she was just like well i'm just gonna keep feeding the cats and then i'll just chase the bear with a shovel and i'm like jesus christ like my oh grandmother. My God, <laughs> come on lady fucking wild anyways yeah the bear thing always gets me because i'm like they're really not unless you have a small terrier and then they'll be like hey that might be food but you know yeah exactly um so yeah and bears even the wilderness are kind of a bigger threat like bears that come around humans are kind of used to dealing with humans so they're a lot less easily spooked by us but in the wilderness you come up upon one and surprise it um may react <laughs> and or if the bear's unwet unwell it may also react poorly but in almost all experiences it's gonna almost all times it will much rather climb a tree than engage in combat of any kind sure they may huff and look threatening on occasion but they're just trying to scare you off obviously like we were just talking about don't be an idiot though don't go thinking the bears are your best friends and go petting them or something just give them their space and their and respect, and 99% of the time, they'll be fine. We are not bear experts. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. So what about a mama bear that has lost her cubs? We have seen many female mammals, when they lose their young, they experience a sort of depression. They become lethargic and disinterested in things that they normally enjoy. There have been even stories of mother mammals refusing to eat and perishing in their sadness. But there have been many recorded cases in the wild and in domestication where a mother mammal that lost its young adopted the young of another, or more bizarrely, adopted the young of another species. You can argue that this is all chemical, as mammals release mommy hormones that drive them to nurture. But there have been numerous studies now that prove that many animal species have measurable emotions. For a wild animal, adopting another species makes no sense from a survival standpoint. From the perspective of a grieving mother, given the opportunity to give that love to something else, it makes perfect sense. But what about human children? Was this bear actually a threat? Everyone's heard of the Jungle Book, but there are several real documented cases of human children being raised by animals. And well, we're not so different after all. Almost all newborns of every mammal has similar traits. Big eyes, large heads, chubby cheeks, small nose and mouth. These characteristics speak to us on an instinctual level. It's why we find kittens so fucking cute. Because the wiring that encourages us to care for our own young is calibrated to the same traits expressed in the children of other mammals. Why wouldn't that work in reverse? Human children are just little naked bears. If you've never seen a naked bear, it's terrifyingly human. <laughs> it's <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> it's hilarious. But let's pretend that this was not the case and the bear was indeed a threat to the small child. 
And for the three-legged cougar, it's not a far stretch to imagine the cat going for Betty Jean. Any predator that has a severe handicap, like a missing limb, is going to have a much harder time hunting for food, and they become much more opportunistic. But if that was the case, you would think that there would be some sort of evidence left behind, as the cougar would have had to take her with it. Jim Farquharson, Farquharson, I'm going to put that in the chat, because fuck, that's a word. <laughs> yeah, let me see. I want to see this because it kind of sounds like fuck you, Harson, and it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it is fuck you, Harson. Sorry, <laughs> this person. I, your last name is deeply unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> it could be like Fark Harson. It could be Fark Harson, I guess, but. Carson? Yeah, but that's still hilarious. Like, yeah. GMF. <laughs> um, <laughs> was a professional game hunter, the brave the bush in search of the toddler. He had plenty of experience hunting predators, and he even came armed with his own cougar dogs. He went out into the bush and shot every predator he could find and checked their stomach contents, but never found any trace of Betty Jean. It's not clear if he killed the three-legged cougar and the mama bear in particular. Different sources report different things. In some cases, he got multiple cougars. Some said it was a bear or a cougar, and others just simply didn't specify. Though it's easy to imagine that a depressed mama bear and an injured cougar would be easy tracking. Then we have foul play. It was Jimmy that had seen the car with the Alberta plates prior to going inside, as he was a big car fan. Based on various descriptions, the car, the car had cat eye or bat wing taillights and was a color somewhere between biscuit, copper, and rust. I don't know dick about cars, but luckily for me, there was only one car with those kind of taillights in 1960, and it was the 1959 Chevrolet Impala. Here's a picture. Uh, yep. These taillights were only used on the 1959 model, making it a very unique-looking car. <laughs> in the stories in the book, many mentioned suspicious things related to the car, that they had seen the couple talking to Betty Jean and bringing her into the car, and the person had seen some the car driving away and pushing something down in the back seat. Josie was able to add that Maurice Masters, Betty Jean's dad, also encountered the car on the road on the way up to meet his family. He recalls in particular because it was driving like a bat out of hell on the rugged logging roads. Obviously, it was before he knew that his daughter was missing. Claims of suspicious behavior aside, this couple was suspicious for other reasons, one being the police dogs. According to Josie, the story she had heard was not that the police dogs were confused like the papers reported. Instead, they always seemed to lose the scent of Betty Jean on the roadside, which could indicate that she was put in a car and driven away. They also had Alberta plates. It's a long way from anywhere, anywhere Alberta to Red Lake which was a small logging community in the center of a dense forest. The only recreational reasons to come out there besides hunting and hiking were fishing. There weren't any stores or restaurants. It was purely rural residential. Chris Creek, which was a bit down, uh, down the road, did advertise itself for camping, but that's really the only reason you'd go out there. And the uh, book at the library had a, an ad for the camping spot, which I thought was kind of cool. Would you like to go back to it all? Enjoy an old-fashioned type holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Camping in the bush. It really does kind of like... it, And then it's like so much text. Old, old-timey ads were like that. It's wild. Right. They write like a novella in the thing. You're like, okay, just get to the point. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but people would fucking read that shit. Like, Oh, I know. I know. I know. It's a, definitely an attention span thing. <laughs> this is one or two people, $12 a day. Wow. Fish in unpolluted lakes in a wilderness area. 
cook your fish on a wood-burning cook stove or smoke or smoke some to take home with you. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my god. So these aren't the kind of hobbies that you take a nice car out to do. Especially not on yeah. logging roads. And the Impala was a really nice car. In the memories book, there are several pictures of the roads in the area. If you've ever went backwards fishing to places only locals know about, you probably have a good idea what these roads look like. They are narrow, dirt trails at best, pitted with deep ruts instead of with large rocks. Not really designed for two vehicles to be on the road at the same time. In the spring, these roads flood in several areas, turning large stretches into pure mud, making it really difficult for even the locals to cross. Um, in the book, there was actually plenty of pictures of the roads. Uh, so it gives us an idea of what they looked like back then. So, do do do. Look, lo uh, like log bush uh, bridges. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just like ruts in the mud. Ugh. Completely. Yep. Wow. Road. <laughs> That's generous. And on one page, I even saw that a lumber truck had gone off the road. Thankfully, the driver was fine. But, you know, if you're someone whose job it is to drive these roads, and even you have a hard time sometimes, I think that testifies just how bad these roads can be. <laughs> fine. So back to the Impala. Like I said, it's a really nice car. It's being so unique, I decided to check all the newspaper archives in Alberta for any mentions of this car for sale. And well, it was a very popular car. But it certainly wasn't affordable for the average Joe. The listings for the car usually fell between $3,000 to $4,000 based on the customization. And even the used ones rarely went for less than $2,500. Average wages for a Canadian male in 1960 was $116 a week on salary or $80 a week on wages. So if you're on salary, you're making a little over $6,000 a year. And on wages, $4,100. So blowing a year's salary on a car just doesn't seem realistic for the average person. Some of the dealerships offer payment plans, but it's not like, it's not like a, your lower or middle class family can have a car like this. But the Impala is different than a lot of fancy cars, like the ones that we see today. Yes, there's the kind of classic, you know, fancy car two-door model, but there's also four-door. It also had a tailgate, which was huge, and, and, and had this huge back area for that you could put anything in, like... Storage space was ridiculous, and it wasn't a low-riding car either. This car had clearance. The car was advertised as elegant and youthful, read cool, advertised as the kind of car your wife wouldn't be mad at, uh, mad at you about if you brought it home without telling her. I'm not kidding. This was an advertisement line that I saw. Oh. Wow. Yeah. The Oh, man. We're going to have to do a... I was thinking about this the other day. We're going to have to do like a look at these old ads and then <laughs> cringe real hard. <laughs> Power, safety, luxury, everything you could want. I just posted one of the ads there. You can see zest, flair, youth. Oh my god, car. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, here's a picture of that. Basically says... Take it easy on your camping trip, the Chevrolet station wagon way. Just flip down the low, wide tailgate. One hand is all it takes, and pile in all your favorite camping gear. Then rest all the way to your favorite out-of-the-way campsite. Chevy's deep coil springs tame even the ruddiest of camping trails. You arrive rested, ready for fun. Blaze a trail to your Chevrolet dealers and try to get one of these Chevrolet's five fun-loving station wagons today. <laughs> oh my gosh, these ads are bananas. Right. Oh, bananas. I love it. But it's not unreasonable that the couple could have been there looking to camp or fish. 
why in BC and not in Alberta? Not just BC, but nowhere BC. Like Josie and I grew up in a tiny town on the edge of BC, often the first real stop for anyone coming from Alberta into southern BC. There's thousands of lakes and camping spaces between there and Red Lake. And Red Lake is one of those small places that only the locals know about. Hmm. But the people that saw the car and but one of the other people that saw the car and the couple or heard the description of the car, no one knew who drive who the drivers could have been. Remember, there are maybe a dozen families living at Red Lake itself all the time. Everyone in is in everyone's business. So if anyone had an inkling of who that car belonged to, it would have got out real fast. Also, the car and its drivers were easy ones to blame in a tragic story. Not every report included mention of the car, but by all accounts, the RCMP did look into it quite aggressively. So they took the sighting seriously. Stranger danger, it makes sense, but also the car had Alberta plates. So if you live anywhere near the edge of BC, you have assuredly heard complaints about them damn Albertans. Nothing is more classic in Eastern BC than grumbling about Alberta this, Alberta that. In Canada, Alberta is tend to be thought of as our, as our conservative deep south. Now, naturally, this doesn't apply to everyone in Alberta. There are some absolutely lovely people that live there or from there. But let's just say this. Looking at who gets voted in in the political positions and some of the bills that get passed there, there's a large vocal set of individuals that aren't as liberally minded, and we'll leave it at that. Jeez. So that is a bias, and it's something we have to consider in this case. Obviously, it doesn't clear the couple at all, but it does make them easy targets. Hmm. Now, in such a small-knit community, no one wants to imagine that anyone from their community could be responsible for such a thing. There were rumors and whispers of other locals possibly being involved in some way or another. Like any other rural area, there was plenty of gossip, and a handful of people of the family and friends found suspicious, but no actual evidence of their involvement. One of the strange, other strange things is that Betty Jean's older brother, who was five at the time of her disappearance, and was also there, he refused to say anything on the topic to the point that he was sent to visit his grandparents for a bit not long after out of concern for him. To this day, he still refuses to talk about it. What? So this could just be a trauma response. Having, you know, been around something horrible in your presence, even if you didn't see anything, can be really hard in a person, and children tend to blame themselves in these kind of scenarios. It's also sure. possible that he did see something and is too scared to talk about it. So it's hard to imagine that if you knew something, watching your mother and family grieve for 60 years, you wouldn't tell somebody. Yeah. I, I find that strange. That, yeah, that feels, that, oh gosh, and of course, like you said, we don't, we don't know. Like, we don't know. Uh, a lot of reasons. What you went like, through, yeah, and it's been so long, like. Uh, and our brains are so good at, at burying things and making us doubt ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. There's one other possibility that plays into a very horrible stereotype. Is that someone had escaped from the nearby mental institute and kidnapped a girl. 40 kilometers, 25 miles southeast from Red Lake was the Tranquil Sanitarium. On foot, it would take someone roughly eight hours to walk from the sanitarium to Red Lake, and that's if they followed the roads. The sanitarium had originally been a tuberculosis treatment facility built in 1907, but was shut down in 1958 to be reopened the following year as a treatment center for the mentally ill and would, be, and would do so until the 1990s, at which point it had 300 patients upon when they closed. Which is also the whole fucking thing about BC dealing with mental illness. Like, yeah, let's close a facility that has 300 people in it and not have anywhere to send them. 
also employed mm-hmm. 600 people in the community. <laughs> oh my Let's god. Let's just close it. Yeah. Great, good move. Good job. But that's, not the first, that's definitely not the last time we did that either. But, you know, that's a story for another day. Oh, BC. Anyways, there's a picture of it. In my search of the digital archives of local newspapers, I didn't come across anything that indicated an escape ever. But it's not impossible that a patient could have escaped, made its way up to Red Lake, Red Lake, but it's hard to imagine that they would have gone unnoticed. Also, again, like, you're in the middle of nowhere, you kidnap a child, what are you going to do? Like, especially if you're not familiar with the wilderness, you're going to have a bad time. So, yeah, it seems highly unlikely. <laughs> right. Today, Alice and Phyllis still hold some suspicions about some of the neighbors back then, but they primarily believe the Albertan couple are responsible, or at least know something that could hold, and they hold hope that this is just one of those child kidnapping cases, the kind where the people who just want a child really bad, but can't have their own, steal someone else's. Not impossible. If we look at the Hatbox baby case, it's kind of the reverse. Sharon grew up thinking she was, knew who she was until her mother on her deathbed told her that she wasn't her biological daughter. Eventually, using DNA services, Sharon was able to find members of her biological family. But I think those are the really rare cases. Like, if you're going to steal a baby, you're going to steal it from a hospital. Right, right. You're going to do, or like someone you you intimately know exactly and if you knew someone well in that community then someone would have known your car (laughs) yeah yes especially a car like that like there wouldn't have been many cars like that in that area for sure that's that's bet that's pickup country (laughs) (laughs) um so in 2013 the case was reopened along with several other cold clay cases in hopes that you know new dna technology might help the rcb find leads um, one paper says, with new forensic techniques available, RCMP are making a public plea in an effort to finally solve the disappearance of a toddler who went missing 53 years ago. On July 30th, or sorry, on July 3rd, 1960, police were called after 21-month-old Edna Betty Jean Masters went missing from a neighbor's, a neighbor's home in Red Lake area, about 70 kilometers north of West Kamloops. The young girl was never found and police could not find any evidence in the case. She was last seen playing with friends at a neighbor's house. Despite an extensive search of the rugged area, which made use of the volunteers, an airplane, and police dogs, police found nothing to help their investigation, despite receiving a number of tips. RCMP Corporal Cheryl Bush on the Monday said that the girl's family wants to finally solve this tragedy, but they did not want to talk to the media about it. Quote, two things they will look into is DNA and age enhancement, Bush said of the latest efforts to find out what happened 53 years ago. With the advent of new technologies, such as DNA, internet, social media, and photo, enha- photo age enhancement, poli- police are looking at further follow-up, she says. Bush said the investigators feel that someone has to have some information somewhere that may solve the mysterious disappearance. Anyone with information is asked to call Kamloops Rural RCMP at, two, at 250-314-1800. Little Edna was last seen wearing a green bonnet with, right frill, with, right, with a white frill pink short sleeve t-shirt, white socks, and sandals. The child, who had blue eyes, blonde curly hair, and a fair complexion, weighed about 24 pounds at the time of her disappearance. There's an oval burn scar that was visible on her left arm between her elbow and shoulder. Bush says that the investigators looked at the possibility that the girl was snatched by a wild animal, but there was no indication that may, that, that, that may have happened. Quote, there is no evidence that she was taken by an animal, said Bush. Oh, there's no evidence at all, and it leaves it wide open. 
she added. Investigators say that they would like to speak to a man and woman that were seen in an area driving a rust-colored Chevrolet with Batwing-style taillights and Alberta plates. Quote, there was a vehicle in the area. What the significance is, we don't know, said Bush. The couple were believed to be in their late 20s. Yeah, they did. An, uh, they hired a forensic artist to do an age progression, and this is what they expected that she would have looked like in 2013. For Betty Jean's case, you know, the call was put out for anyone who thinks that they might know someone that could be Betty Jean or that they think that they might be. The RCMP hired a forensic artist, put together the drawing that I showed you, and several people came forward and DNA tests were performed and compared against family members, but no match was ever found. Um, Josie also said that during this time as well, Phyllis uh, and I think Alice went out back out to the crime scene with the police and kind of went over everything again, went through the files, that kind of thing, just trying to see if there was anything they could find that maybe they didn't notice before, but no luck. The Masters will never stop looking for Betty Jean. We will include links to the RCMP case file and additional information on our site. If you think you, you or someone you know might have information, obviously any little bit of information helps. So, you're probably wondering what the fourth possibility is, because I've only listed three. Environment, wildlife, and foul play. Somehow, when researching this, I went full circle. Because I came to find out that this case is considered to be part of BC's Bermuda Triangle. The topic was originally, that I was originally planning to cover before my best friend mentioned this story, and I hadn't even told her about that I was planning to do the BC's Bermuda Triangle, so it's just a really weird coincidence. <laughs> And when I looked into this, I really only found one site slash YouTube channel known as Mysteries of Canada that mentions this by name. But when I checked my notes on the ideas page for this topic, they were also the same ones. So it seems that Mysteries of Canada are the ones that can be credited with, credited with figuring this out. Don't worry, they cite plenty of sources. So as much as people like to think of Canada as the safe place where everyone just says sorry, fortunately we too have crime. Missing persons and our own dark history just kind of gets drowned out by everything that's happening down there. <laughs> Yeah. If you're a true kind fan, you probably have heard of David Police, former San, Ho San Jose police officer turned researcher. David's primary focus is mysterious, pers mysterious persons' disappearances, and he has published 10 books and two documentaries under the series of Missing 411 or Just 411. I'm sure you've heard of Hallie with all the park disappearances we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Yeah, so you may have heard of this as the National Parks Conspiracy, which basically implies the National Park Service is hiding something from the people about these disappearances and deaths. The whole thing that's worthy of its own topic one day, uh, we're only going to focus on a very small portion today. David became hooked on the topic when he heard about our disappearance in a national park and then discovered that the National Park Service is incredibly dodgy when it comes to disappearances that happen in their parks. With a little help from the officials, David dug into the things the old-fashioned way, finding newspaper articles, talking to locals, scouring the internet to see what he could find. What he found was that there was an inordinate amount of mysterious disappearances in national parks, and many of them shared a lot of the same characteristics. From this, David built a profile of the kinds of disappearances he was looking into. There doesn't appear to be a complete definitive list. There's some criteria that are sort of just catch-alls that I'm just going to ignore, but here's kind of one of the most complete lists that I could find. So, one, these victims disappear with virtually no trace. The tracks are rarely found, and if they are, they usually end very abruptly. Search and rescue dogs either find no trail, or if they do, they end abruptly, not in places that make sense, or the dogs exhibit, exhibit strange behavior like circling around and sitting down, which is not a common behavior for these dogs to do when they're on the job. Or there's no evidence the person, sorry, and then there's no evidence the person may be victim to an animal attack. 
person doesn't have a reason to go missing. David ignores all cases where a person had mental health struggles or may have left on their own accord. If the person is found, they're usually found in a place that was repeatedly searched. In many cases, they are never found. If they are found alive, they don't remember what happened or remember really bizarre events that don't make any sense. If found dead, they're found in places which would be really difficult, if not impossible, to access by foot or to access in the time that lasts between discovery and the disappearance. The cause of death is nearly always just marked as exposure and nothing is looked into any deeper, it seems. The timing of the death is often also strange. For example, if a person was missing for a week, they would be found to have died only a couple days prior, leaving the rest of the time completely unaccounted for. All these things in this scenario, like obviously we never found anything with Betty Jean, but the rest of that does apply to her scenario about just the dogs they weren't able to find anything, there was no tracks, there was just nothing. Most of David's books include both America and Canada, though the primary focus is American. Though in, 19, uh, though in 2019, he did publish Missing 401 Canada, and then he mentions getting help from getting help putting together cases from friends in, up north, and apparently Canada's National Park Service was just as helpful as it was in the U.S. In the, bar, in the book, there is a map specifically of British Columbia mapping out the mysterious disappearance. David notes that 40% of Canadian mysterious disappearances occur in this province. And BC isn't our most populated province. <laughs> In 2022, BC had roughly 5.4 million people. That's beat out by Quebec at 8.7 and Ontario at 15.3. It's estimated in 2022 that Canada had a total population of 38.5 million. So this would make BC account for only 14% of the entire population. That is 40% of the missing mysterious person cases. Which is fucking weird. This could yeah. just be, is this really strange if the statistic is true? It could also just be indicative of his data sources, right? right. If, if you're totally talking to people in Western Canada, you're going to find stories from Western Canada. <laughs> David notes that Vancouver Island could be a study on its own, same with Vancouver. In the streets of Canada, Canada noticed that, the, that when these two clusters are ignored, the disappearances form a bit of a strange triangle. There's a picture. Huh, Okay. Oh yeah, a bit of a triangle. To me, it doesn't look like a whole lot, but anyways. <laughs> when it's mapped out to match the contours of the land, and then was later mapped out to match the different borders of our indigenous people. And we have a bit of a triangle again that seems to fall within those borders specifically. He thinks that there's a reason for this, the guy who runs the channel. So it's Mysterious of Canada that seems to be the first one to plainly point this out. They then go on to go through all these strange disappearances, covering dozens of different cases. In them is the Betty Jean case, but not just that. This is a story that Nathan covered on Ryan Stuka, who was also captured mm -hmm. in this area. So what's the cause of this clustering? We don't really know. Mysterious of Canada digs into a myriad of po different possibilities from, you know, indigenous legend. Um, it's like there were some crazy freaking stories from that area. Apparently, there's you know mountain trolls and all sorts of things have been known to take people, which is something else amazing. That I just want to get into my on another time, but <laughs> to an active predator, or it could just be circumstance. Or you know, my theory, it's possible that people disappear in these places because people live in these places. It, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's always one of those things that kind of cracks me up because it's like. No matter what, we're 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 programmed to look for patterns, mm -hmm. and you're you're gonna find them anywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Yes, absolutely, and like, and it's much more more rural up there than it is. <laughs> yeah, um, 
in a even in a lot of places in the U.S. I mean, yeah, y'all have a much smaller population and such a huge landmass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of empty space in there for sure. I'd like to cover this in depth one day more, but obviously not time today. The question is, of course, what happened to Betty Jean? Did she get lost in the wilderness? Was she the victim of an animal attack? Was there foul play? Or was this something much bigger? We don't know. All we can do is spread awareness and hope that someone somewhere knows something and comes forward so that the Master's family may finally get some peace. Your guys' theories? I mean, it would not be hard for a little kid to toddle off, get lost, because they're tiny. And what what time of year was this? It was it was July, so summer. Hot. Okay, so not frigid, but but in that area that gets really that gets pretty warm around summer. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't take much for a kid to overheat and collapse, and that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it animal attack makes total sense too. I would think there would be some sort um, of evidence the dogs would affect that then. Yeah. I don't know. Dogs are. <laughs> I keep thinking of that Jacob Gray case too, and it's like, you know, they had dogs brought out, and the dogs couldn't get any further than um, where he crossed the the river, where they think he crossed the um that part of the the really quick river that they were dredging. His dad was out there, you know, with the beaver dams and stuff. Yeah. I... That's a natural break, though. So that kind of makes sense, but there wasn't anything like that in this case. Yeah, it's not like there was a creek I... across. I still think it's probably the the age old everyone is trustworthy, you know, in the fifties and sixties. Yep. And they just yep. lost a kid to it because someone out there was like They threw her in a trunk and that was it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if it was somebody local, you'd think there'd be more stories around that area and around that time of kids disappearing, but there really wasn't a lot. So like that does put more points in favor of the Albertan couple, right? <laughs> so, but yeah, so, yeah, that absolutely is right. But we we say that, but like you know, um, we had Mike on the show and he covered his own experiences with. Yes, but he also, you know, the thing is where he was attempted, where they attempted to pick him up, like dozens of other incidents happened in that general area. Fair. The guy was I think it was just the I think it was just the idea that like it was someone that they knew, right? Oh, it wasn't, not for Mike. It was, it oh, was, it wasn't? It was, oh, okay. It was completely unusual because rarely do you will attack people they don't right. know. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought I was There's I misunderstood. I thought it was uh, yeah. Yeah. Still, it's yeah. All those serial killings that, you know, had to start somewhere like who freaking knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel so bad for her family though. Ugh. Yeah. Like I can't imagine. Like obviously this July will be the sixtieth year anniversary. Wow. Uh, and that's that's oh my goodness. Uh, it's like he just can't believe there's nothing this long. Nothing. Not a yeah. And if there had been, they missed it, you know, technology, the technology to track didn't exist at the time. It's not like they had you know, radar or anything to, it's not like they were, fl- they could fly helicopters over <laughs> this part and find something. It just. Yeah. It's also an area that was filled with wilderness people um, that hunt in that area. And 
It's also a logging area, so there's a good chance a bunch of that wood's been clear-cut mm. and, like, dug up at some point, so you'd think something would have showed up. But... Yeah, or, oh, gosh, I just realized it could have very, when you said Hunter, like, it could have very easily been somebody who accidentally shot the kid, panicked, and ran off with him, like... But it's summer. That's not a hunting season in generally. Um, usually our hunting season starts in the fall. Well, you wouldn't have been legally hunting unless you were hunting... Well, I was going to say, poachers are a... <laughs> Yeah. Especially if you were poaching, yeah. You'd think there'd be news stories about that, too, though. I When I looked up yeah, news stories, I, I was looking know. for anything to do with Red Lake, so... <laughs> it wasn't I, I much. Do, it, it, is, it is so interesting because of, we've covered things in, in so many different time periods that... You know, yes, we have the ability to cover things as they happen, but we have our own problems with misinformation. Hmm. And at that time, it was a lack of being... to able to track information because that was a that was a shoe leather and sidewalk kind of thing that you had to manually go and do and it's not even like mm -hmm. they didn't even have their own local police like this, these police yeah. came from like Kamloops which was like a couple hours away Ugh. yeah hopefully oh, we cool. get some That's answers someday fucking bummer yeah right yeah I, that yeah that is such i the missing the missing people cases are always so like heartbreaking and fascinating at the same time because we think like how could how could someone just disappear but clearly we have examples of that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just still so bizarre to me that it's been so long. And just nothing. It, you know, no matter what happened just having any idea of what like what really happened would be I'm sure a great comfort to the family. Right. That of just that what if Goodness. something something is found mm -hmm. that's it for this week thanks so much for taking the time and listening if you have any information that might help the masters find answers please please reach out to the Kamloops RCMP the link to the case file will be found on our website next time we return Nathan will tell us about feral cattle yep feral cattle as always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm -hmm.